The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Good morning. Pastor Brian and I are doing a little bit of a uh, alternating teaching chapters in the second London. Um, so he just wrapped up chapter 22 on Sabbath and religious service, I believe. I get chapter 23 on oaths and vows. And then he gets chapter 24 on the relationship with civil government. Then I get the weirdest chapter or paragraphs on marriage. Then he gets the one on the church. There's no master plan, I'm sure, in giving me all the weird ones. But if you uh, didn't get a handout, there are some in the back. Uh, so today we'll probably just cover paragraph 1 and 2 of chapter 23 in the Confession. But would like to begin by reading all of chapter 23. There's only five paragraphs, so it is not that long. And then we will delve into it. Chapter 23 says of lawful oaths and vows. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein the person swearing in truth, righteousness, and just and judgment solemnly calls upon God to witness what he swears, to judge him according to the truth or falseness thereof. The name of God is only that by which men ought to swear. Therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore to swear vainly, rashly, by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing, is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet as in matter of weight and moment for confirmation of truth, and ending all strife, an oath is warranted by the word of God. So a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. Whosoever taketh an oath warranted by the word of God ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he knows to be truth. For that by rash, false, and vain oaths the Lord is provoked, and for them this land mourns. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. A vow which is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone, is to be made and performed with all religious care and faithfulness. But popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. So as we begin looking at uh, paragraph 1 of chapter 23, it is with regards to lawful oaths and vows. Uh, Just for curiosity's sake and to make sure that we're not all uh, fighting against sleep. Who knows the difference between an oath and a vow? Raise your hand and then therefore be ready to speak. What is the difference between an oath and a vow? I'm not above calling on people. Yes. 
a testing of something, whereas a vow is making a promise. Very, very close. So an oath is going to be uh, a testing or a swearing to the truthfulness of past or present events, whereas a vow it would be a promising or a swearing to uh, carry out certain activities into the future. So they are related in, in a sense that both are made before God, both are solemn declarations, but one is with regards to truthfulness in the past, one is with regards to moving forward into the future. So paragraphs one through four talk about the role that oaths have. Paragraph five is going to be specifically toward or aimed at vows. And if we consider uh, the importance of things talked about in the confession of faith, we've dealt with some pretty weighty things. The Trinity, the Word, the role of covenant as far as God's dealings with mankind, Sabbath days. It might seem odd that oaths make the list. At least it seemed odd to me. Um, but it shows up not just in this confession, but it shows up in the Westminster and other uh, Reformation-era confessions of truth. So they, they took oath-making and vow-making very seriously. It's actually so, probably something that we don't emphasize enough in our, our modern Christian experience or practice. And one of the reasons why the Baptists in particular had to speak very carefully and clearly to this topic is because it it didn't just show up in a vacuum, it actually shows up in a historic context. So uh, the Baptists, or the Reformed Baptists, were in part uh, showing their, their agreement and their continuity with the others in the Reformed faith. So that's, there's a reason why um, the Second London and the Westminster track side by side. We're, we're, we're showing that we are like-minded. Now, there are some areas where they would differ, and oddly enough, oaths is one of them. So if you remember, historically, there, there's a, a group called the Anabaptists, which is a very troubled group, a very mixed bag of individuals, and they were entirely against any vow or any oath. Do you know why they would be against such a thing? Why, why would a group of Anabaptists, well, if you ask why did an Anabaptist do anything, it's a complex answer. But why would a group of people, Anabaptists and Quakers actually share this with them, be against any oath-making or vow-making? Joy. Uh, that, that's a, a good thought. In case they can't keep their promise, that should cause all of us to hesitate before we do uh, uh, make a vow or an oath. But that wasn't their reason. It's a good thought, though. Any others? Why would they not? Why would they be averse to it or say that it was sin? It's a good thought. It's incorrect. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to. <laughs> Johnny, <laughs> you are absolutely correct. In fact, you and Pastor Brian both have the full answer right there in front of us. So if you, we will be turning around our, or turning in our Bibles at multiple times today, so don't sit comfortably by, but take that Bible or app out in front of you if you're 
a digital Bible person will pray for you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. And again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or his footstool, excuse me, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. There's a parallel passage in the book of James where I believe James is simply quoting uh, the Lord Jesus Christ here in Matthew chapter 5. So uh, the Anabaptists, yes, in part due to their relationship with the state, with uh, like a, a court requiring of them that they uh, swear under their authority or a oath of office or military service, that state church distinction was part of it. Another part of it uh, for the Anabaptists and for the Quakers would be their understanding of what Jesus is saying here. So I think what they failed to do, and, and this is all to explain that first uh, phrase, I guess, from paragraph one, a lawful oath. So the first question we've got to be asking ourselves are, are, are these things even lawful or biblical? The Anabaptists and the Quakers would say, well, no, they're not. And they're not for reasons laid out here in Matthew chapter 5. And my concern is that they, they fail to take in the scope of what Scripture speaks to. So they zero in on one, one passage and don't understand it in light of both the context in which we find Matthew chapter 5, uh, nor do they uh, take into account the rest of what the Lord Jesus Christ said. If you remember in Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, they, were, um, make, they had a practice of vowing or oathing or to the right verb for it would be to swear. I'm not going to ask you who knows what swearing is and to give any examples. That's taken on a different connotation in our uh, time and day. But to make an oath or to make a vow, the verb would be to swear. So they would swear by things to attest to the truthfulness of what they were saying. And they believed that if they swore by the temple or by the gold or by this, that, or the other thing, it would have the appearance of being weighty and binding, but they would, you know, later on could, felt like they could get out of it because, well, I didn't swear by Jerusalem, I, sw- I swore by, they would try to deceive you by saying, well, it wasn't binding for these reasons. So that was one of the contexts in which Jesus is speaking here in Matthew chapter 5. And if we understand what he's pushing back against, isn't it wicked to, to portray what you're saying as being true or binding when you know full well in your own heart and mind that it isn't? And that's what they're doing. I mean, it, it would be like me saying like, well, I, 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 I'll, I'll do this for you. And you're like, really? 
yes, I, I, I swear on my own beard. And you'd be like, that is binding. And then later, it's, like, it's, just, it's just a beard. It doesn't bind me. I bind it. I mean, it would have the, uh, the illusion of truthfulness, but it would be used to deceive. So it was the perverting or the perverted use of vows and oaths that, uh, that gave rise to what Jesus is pushing back on in Matthew chapter 5. And I think if we actually understand what he says in context, I don't think he's against oath-making. He's against a, a deceptive type of oath-making or false oath-making. And then if we consider the rest of what the Bible says about it, I think the, the picture gets really clear. So Bible is open. We're going to turn to uh, several passages here. I want you to see it in the text for yourself because this is not uh, usually, um, I think this is a topic that we aren't super familiar with. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, going to be the granddaddy of texts. On oath-making, Exodus 20, verse 7, you should recognize it as the Ten Commandments. You shall not, verse 7, take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, as as we understand the the way that the Ten Commandments are being used and, and the way that they're put forth, is the word saying, you shall not take God's name? Is that what it says? Now, what does it say? It puts a limiting factor on it. Don't take it vainly or wrongfully. Now, with this commandment, as well as the other commandments, there is a, um, a prohibition in most of them, and there's an understood prescription. So... Um, with the sixth commandment, do not murder. Do I fulfill all of the sixth commandment just because I haven't ended a human's life? Well, no, I've kept the prohibition, but there's an understood prescription, isn't there? Jesus gives it, love your neighbor. Or if you take the eighth commandment, do not steal. Well, what does Paul say to that? Let him who steals stop. And what's the positive Work hard and be generous. There's actually a a flip to each of the commandments. So here, we're not to take God's name vainly. Uh, The Reformers and the Puritans said this is actually one of the most fundamental passages for prayer. You're commanded to take his name, but take it rightly. So when Christians take the the name of God on their lips, they're to to do it. They're, They're actually called to call on God's name, to take his name, but they're to do it not in a vain or in an irreverent way. So I actually think far from um, prohibiting oath-making or taking the name of God, I think the third commandment actually says, uh, it assumes you do, do it rightly. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. It is Yahweh your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall what? Swear. You shall make an oath by his name. Does this prevent or prohibit any use of God's name in making of oaths and vows? No, it actually 
commands that when you do it, you do it in his name and in his name only. Turn one or two pages over to Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. It's not like 6.13 stood alone. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. So whatever Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5 is not going to be in contradiction to what we're reading in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and chapter 10. They're they're actually going to fit perfectly together. So uh, the Ten Commandments actually um, command that we take God's name in a proper way, not an improper way. Uh, Deuteronomy says that the name of God is the only name by which we should swear or make oaths. And then if you actually turn all the way over to Hebrews, far into the Bible, chapter 6. Hebrews six thirteen through 16. Listen to how the author of the book of Hebrews, we usually just call him Paul, says... <clears throat> For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to, what's the word? Swear. He swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with a what? With an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold Fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, what does Hebrews chapter 6 say? Who is the one oathing in Hebrews chapter 6? And does he swear by something or someone other than God? No. He actually does the same thing that we've been told in Exodus chapter 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Actually, if oathing or swearing or making an oath is wrong... Hebrews chapter 6 does not make a whole lot of sense. Uh, We won't turn to all of the examples, but if you wanted to see this uh, worked out descriptively, it's not prescriptive, but it's a description of events. If you look at the way the Old Testament saints um, use or engage in vows and oaths, you could look at Genesis 24 or Genesis 47 or Genesis chapter 50. Um, There are actually areas in the law of Moses that required an oath to be made. So far from the law saying you shouldn't make any oaths, there were actually places in the law where to carry it out properly 
you had to make an oath. Does, does any come to mind? If not, that's all right. Yes. Nazarite vow uh, is, is a type of a vow that is described, absolutely. There's actually the test of adultery, where they'd be brought to, the, the one accused would be brought to the altar and would be, uh, they would make, a, make an oath as to the truthfulness of it or not. Um, you can find that in uh, Numbers 5, 1 Kings 8, Exodus 22. And then, very interestingly, we find the same person, Jesus, in the same book, Matthew, engaging in an oath or a vow. Turn to Matthew 26. I know this might seem like a long walk for a little drink of water, but I do think it's important to establish uh, all of what Scripture says on the topic before we delve in too deep. We have to know if oaths are lawful before we look at their proper use or not. Matthew 26, 62 through 64. So the context is the high priest... um, cross-examining Jesus, and he is not answering their questions. So they are asking him over and over again, and Jesus' response is just silence. He's not saying anything. Matthew 26, 62, the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. Do you know what uh, that word means? It means to, to bind with an oath. I put you under an oath in this moment. And notice whose name he attaches to the oath or in what name the oath is made. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, I think it's very interesting that only at this point, when Jesus is bound by an oath in the name of the living God, it's actually the only time he answers in this text. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. It's actually the only time Jesus speaks in this entire scene is when the high priest is face to face with the real high priest, which is Jesus, and binds him by an oath. That's the only time Jesus speaks. So if Jesus says, do not make any vow whatsoever, and we understand that as an absolute sense in Matthew chapter 5, we, I think we run into a problem in Matthew 26. So clearly Jesus isn't ruling out all oaths and vows. What he's doing is he is ruling out wrongful oaths and wrongful vows. And I think we could actually glean a uh, a valuable lesson here to be careful not to um, make too big of a doctrinal assertion out of one text without taking it all in. So the the Anabaptists and, and, and the Quakers as well, Yes, there were other um, things going on, but they, they really pinned a lot on this text without, I, I think, taking into account all of what Scripture says. You might say, well, all of the examples 
that you made, except for the Hebrews example, was an Old Testament example. Maybe vows were an Old Testament thing, not a New Testament thing. Well, Paul makes them at several places. Um, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, in Romans chapter 1, uh, he says to the church he's writing, I, as God is my witness, what is that a formulation for? A formulation for? It's an oath. He's saying, what I'm saying is true. I say it with God witnessing it as to its truthfulness. Um, you also see a description. It's not a prescription, but it's a description in Acts 18, verse 18, of a certain group of men who had to wait to carry out some duties because they were under an oath, and uh, I believe it involved not cutting of their hair. So let's be careful before we take uh, make too much out of one text without understanding it in its rightful context. So looking at paragraph 1 of chapter 23, are oaths lawful? I believe they are. Are vows lawful? I believe they are. I believe scripture describes them, prescribes them, and puts limits on them. So Uh, The second letter says, a lawful oath is an element of religious worship. We would get that from the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus 20, verse 7. We would get that from Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, uh, with the positive commands that you shall swear according to the name of God. Now, notice the limitations that the second letter puts on it. In which a person swearing in truth righteousness, and judgment. Why do you think they would attach those three words to kind of the bumpers that should guide the oaths and the vows we make? I think the first one's really easy. Why would they say that the oath needs to be made in truth? Seems very obvious. It's low-hanging fruit. It is not a lie. Yes, you are correct. It is not a lie. So um, should you use or can you use an oath or a vow to deceive? No. It's an absolutely improper violation of the limitations of God's word. It's to break um, the ninth commandment. Don't lie. So that's why it's in truth. Why should it be done in righteousness? They seem like they overlap a lot, but not entirely. Why in righteousness? Well, that's the next one. That, so, that, 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 so it's in truth, righteousness, and judgment. Why righteousness? Paul. Uh, explain more. I think you're going on the right trail. Yeah, if you are having to use O's on, on the daily... Not a very trustworthy person, <laughs> right? Yeah, we would use them for for serious or somber um, uh, situations that that have a level beyond dishes. Uh, any other thoughts on why it's uh, righteous in the back? Yep. So it's it's made in God's name. So it should be uh, it should have things about it that are reflective of God's name. I think also part of it is uh, is there not times and ways in which Truth can be used um, toward wrong ends or for wrong purposes or to tell 
part of something that, and, that, and that, that part is true, but you left out some other parts that were also true that would have really helped put this on the right path. So not to tell partial truths or, or aspects of it and say like, well, I, I mentioned this piece. You're like, yeah, but you left out this other piece that is vital for understanding it. So it needs to be done in truthfulness and for good purposes or righteous purposes and judgment. Now, why would they add judgment? Why judgment? In the back again. You know, what, are, what are we asking to do when we make an oath? What are we asking God to do? Stand behind it. I think it's close. Way over there. Mm-hmm. So if you're telling the truth, uh, God would be the one who would vindicate you. What if you're lying? What are you asking God to do? To judge you. Is that a grievously serious thing? Yeah, it is. So when Paul says, I'm telling the truth, I call God as witness, that's not a, a light thing. To use Paul's analogy, that, that's not Paul saying to the Corinthians, I'll do the dishes. He's saying, I'm talking about gospel truths and you're not believing me. I call God to witness on this aspect. So it has to be in truth. It has to be done in righteousness to righteous ends and in accord with God's character. And it needs to be done in the aspect of your calling upon God as judge to, to witness to the truthfulness of your words. And if you are telling the truth that you would be vindicated and if you are lying that he would reckon with you. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, uh, Ruth uses that formulation, if I remember. May God do to me and worse, if anything but death separates me from you. That's a, that's a sober statement. Um, that passage, while I get is made from Ruth to her mother-in-law, um, my wife and I used part of that statement in our wedding vows where we vowed before God to witness the truthfulness of what we are saying, and it's a vow, so it's with regards to future events. We will do these, and we're vowing, yes, in the presence of the other person, but God's the one who binds us to that. So when wedding vows are carried out, there's a reason why God's name is invoked in those situations. We're calling on him as the judge to witness to the truthfulness, the righteousness, and to ultimately judge us if we violate these things. Very, very serious. Um, so we call on God to witness as judge. Uh, continuing on in, par- in paragraph one, it solemnly calls God to witness what is sworn and to judge the one swearing according to the truth or falsity of it. So ba- basically in, in those situations where there is truth disputed, and you're saying, um, you know, I did do this or I did not do this. May God judge and, and bear witness to it. That, that's what you're asking God to do in that situation. You're asking him to, um, to judge you in that case. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 
Paul says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. So Paul says, I didn't come. I didn't come for, for, for very specific reasons. The Corinthians thought they knew why he didn't do it, and that they thought they were for other reasons. Paul says, may God judge me if, if what I'm saying is wrong. Uh, Matthew 26, 63, uh, we talked about how the Lord Jesus Christ answered when he was bound by oath. So, so that, though, that's the basic framework from, chap, or from paragraph one of chapter 23, is that um, these are lawful uses. You know, there are elements of religious practice uh, they must abide by truth, righteousness, and judgment, and they fundamentally are invoking God's name to be the judge or the vindicator of what is said. Moving on to paragraph two, uh, paragraph two speaks to the sanctity or the propriety of oaths. So paragraph two says, people should swear by the name of God alone. Now, why would we, you've already been, you've already heard the answer to that read this morning a few times. We'll see how our memory is. Why would we say, or why would the confession say, you should only swear by God alone? Yeah, so you, you, you've, you've got both the answers I was looking for right there. Is it sufficient enough to say, is it a good enough answer to say, uh, well, the Bible says so? Yes, that is a sufficient answer. We need nothing more than that. If the Bible says, do not swear in any other name but by God's name, I, we aren't owed anything beyond that. But you've also hit on another aspect, which is that in the oath-making, you're asking God to bear witness and to judge. Who is the only judge? God. So you could swear by other things all day long, and it would be akin to idolatry. You're, you're, you're correct. No one or nothing else is uh, the judge, only God. Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall swear by his name alone. So uh, should any Christians be saying, well, you know, I, I, I swear by the beard of Zeus or by Odin's eye. These are, these are real examples that, I, that I've heard. Um, why does that not work? Well, because... Zeus isn't real, and neither is Odin. So I should not be in any serious fashion using their names. Um, is there any other judge besides God? No, there is not. Um, now, there's one that I've heard often, and that's to, it's to bring moms into the mix. And I don't know why we bring moms into the mix. But we swear either by our mother's grave or mother's milk or who knows what. It has to do with mom. Do not swear on your mom's grave. She is not God, nor can she judge you. So this is actually a pretty common one for someone to invoke um, the grave of a loved one. That is a a total abuse of oath-making. Joy. You can imagine me in the sun, be like, thanks, Mom. <laughs> Don't bring me into this. 
yeah, we shouldn't swear on lives, shouldn't swear on graves, shouldn't swear on beards. You, you swear in God's presence, and that's it. So that kind of language of, of graves or heads or children or whatever shouldn't, shouldn't be named among us. Really shouldn't. Um, I know we, we use some of those. Um, we'll, we'll actually get into ways where we probably violate this more than uh, we think we might. Um, but it goes on, not just that we should, if I can find my place here, we can, or should only swear by the name of God alone and only with the utmost holy fear and reverence. So it is not a light thing to invo- invoke God as a judge and to, as Pastor Brian said, to, to do to me and worse is what we're saying. So that is it. That should invoke holy fear and reverence, which means that of items of dishes or storytelling, if your friend is telling you, like, I caught a fish that was this big, you're like, it was not that big. And he's like, I swear, I swear to God. It's not a holy and reverent situation. It's a fish. And everyone knows that it wasn't that big, no matter how much you may swear to the contrary. So it, it, these are reserved for uh, sober, serious, reverent, holy circumstances where the truthfulness or the, or the falsity of it um, has great consequences. Um, adding I swear at the end of a story uh, or details of a story probably should be a red flag to you that you're not a trustworthy individual. If no one believes you and you have to keep adding to the end of things, like I swear, I swear. Um, maybe rethink the way you use your words. Uh, we probably don't have as much of an issue uh, by swearing. I don't, I don't think any of us here, hopefully not. If you do, come talk to uh, Charlie, not me, but uh, talk to Charlie about, if you're, if you're swearing by false deities or mother's graves, um, like that's obviously and clearly wrong. But where we probably run into an issue here is when we make these statements lacking the proper reverence and seriousness that should be attached to it. So when we take God's name on our lips with regards to promising or oathing or swearing, it should be um, with a holy fear. So we should not flippantly say, I swear. There's another one, and I don't know if it's swearing or blasphemy. Both of those are wrong. But I, I hear it a fair bit where someone goes, Oh, Lord. In the midst of that, like they're, they're encountering a situation and they're uttering God's name to do what? Like what's the function there? It's, it's either serving as an expletive, in which case it's blasphemy, or it, it is a frivolous use of an oath. Both are grievously wrong and should not have any place among us. So when we do take God's name, what time are we supposed to be done? 1010. Excellent. Uh, when we take God's name on our lips, it needs to be done in a way that is uh, fitting and proper for the use of his name. So back to uh, the third commandment, do not take the name of your God vainly or wrongly. That means that we should take it rightly. Now that has led, this will be a, a just a, a brief little rabbit trail. But that has led some to say, well, it, it, uh, we shouldn't use God's name 
ever. And that, that, that's one of the reasons why uh, your Bibles uh, in the Old Testament, when you encounter the all caps L-O-R-D, there's actually a history behind that, a history that showed up around 300 A.D., um, saying that, you know, if, we're, if we want to avoid all vain uses of God's name, the solution is, like, don't ever say his name. And so that, that, that's one of the reasons why in, instead of, so I, I think it was in Deuteronomy 6 and 10 where I, you would have heard me read something other than Lord, right? It was Yahweh. So that they used his name, and there's a bit of a tradition that says, like, we won't ever utter that name. Well, I think that's wrong on a few reasons. Number one, I think Moses and David and all who wrote used his name. There's a reason why they wrote, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. There's a reason why they invoke his personal covenantal name, and it isn't a vain usage. So there's, there's two, two ditches that we want to avoid with regards to the use of God's name and the use of God's name in uh, vows and oaths in particular. The one ditch is to be so frivolous and flippant with it that, that we're guilty of breaking the third commandment. We, we use it vainly. So when we utter it in any kind of exasperated way, that's, that, that's a sin. It's breaking of, of the third commandment. The other ditch that we want to avoid is to be so fearful of that that we never use God's name. That we would never make proper or rightful vo- uh, oaths or vows. Or that we would, I, I wouldn't say that this is sin per se, but... Um, it does tr- bother me that that's the way it shows up in our Bibles. So you, you will, anytime you hear me read from the Old Testament, you'll hear, when it's all caps, L-O-R-D, you hear me say, Yahweh. Because I, I don't think that we should be so afraid of it that, um, that we never use it. He's the one who invites us to use his name. So he invites his people to take his name on our lips. Now, a related element of it, and I think with this we'll, we'll finish for the day. One of the ways that um, we take his name on our lips, and not necessarily in formal oaths and vows, but if there's a category for informal, it would probably be this. We're about to engage in a service. And guess whose name we will take on our lips many times today? God's. And you know as well as I do how, especially if you know the the song very well, Autopilot. And you're like wrestling a child, trying not to spill your coffee while you're singing God's name in a totally distracted manner. We need to be careful the way that we use God's name here on the Lord's Day. But we also should not shy away from it. He is the one who invites us to take his name on our lips and to raise up praises to him. So when we sing today, should be with joy and trembling, the psalm says. So joy that we have the honor of taking his name on our lips, trembling because it's a holy name. So when we sing, when we pray, 
we need to keep that in our minds. That this is a joyful privilege and a reverent, trembling, um, in the old sense of the word, awful, full of awe. That who are we that we would take God's name on our lips? But he calls us to do it. And so just, I would leave us with this to encourage us that as we sing and as we pray, to with truth, righteousness, with holy reverence, and with, the, with, with rightful fear of God, with fear, take his name on our lips today as we sing. And if you pay attention to some of the things we say in our songs, they sound a lot like vows. I will do this. I will, I will. Or when we say amen, we're saying it's true. That too is, a, is, a, is, a, is an assertion in God's presence. This is true. We're quick to say that. Now let's be careful. Those truths have consequences as to how we should live. So when we say amen to a truth spoken, and we say it here in the assembly, and we say it in God's presence, that has consequences. We're going to sing some things today that should change and shape our life moving forward this week. So don't, don't, don't do it frivolously and don't shy away from it, but do it carefully, reverently, uh, and with fear and with joy. Let's pray. Our fathers, we take your name on our lips today. We pray that we would be filled with holy joy, that we, your children, can call you our Father, that we as your sons and daughters can take your name on our lips. Father, what a kingly privilege you've granted to us, your people. What a gift. We pray, O oh God, that we would not be careless in the way that we call out to you. We pray that you would stir up our hearts so we wouldn't take your name on our lips in a cold-hearted fashion or a distracted fashion, but that we would take your name on our lips and that it would be heart deep, that you would answer us, your people, that you would meet with us today, that your presence would be sweet known to us, that your word would ride forth with power, and that you would change us, your people. Father, we, we pray that you would not allow us to leave here the same as when we came in, but that by your word, by your spirit, by the fellowship of the saints, by all of the graces at work here, that you would change us. We pray that you would cast down idols that we have. We pray that those areas in our life where we are not like Christ, and Lord, they are innumerable, that you would transform us and shape us and mold us more into your likeness and image. Use today for that end, we pray. In our Savior's great name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.
www.thepowerofpositivity.com.